0: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Scaling New Heights podcast. During this episode, we will talk with Mark Wickersham. Mark is a chartered accountant, public speaker, and number one best-selling author. And he is known primarily as a thought leader in the area of value pricing. Mark is passionate about the accounting profession's need to turn a corner on its pricing models and to more directly connect the way we price with the value that we bring. Unfortunately, the reality right now is very different from what Mark has envisioned and what Mark is passionate to create. Benchmarking studies show that over half of accounting firms are actually making a true economic loss. The principles that we're going to cover in this podcast, my introductory matter about value pricing, and my conversation with Mark are designed to change that reality. So before we bring Mark on, I want to talk a little bit about what value pricing is, what it's not, and then I'm going to give you Ron Baker's five-step process for implementing value pricing. That's a very high-level primer on it, but... I'm going to still give it to you. First, value pricing is not fixed fee pricing. Fixed fee pricing takes the cost you incur to deliver a specific service or a slate of services and then determines the price you need to set so your firm has a margin. Then you monitor the cost that you incur on a regular basis, you monitor the scope and nature of the services that you provide on a regular basis, and you adjust the fixed fee price so that you can maintain that margin, whatever your target margin is. Now, fixed fee pricing is still an improvement over hourly pricing. Ron Baker says no one should price by the hour because you're selling a product an hour to clients and clients don't buy hours they buy results so at least with fixed fee pricing you get the hourly rate out from between you and the client and you get to focus on the service that you're providing and maybe without the distraction of the hourly rate you and the client can focus more consistently on the effect the ROI that you are generating as a result of that service But value pricing is something completely different and much more powerful and potentially much more lucrative for your firm. Value pricing does not begin or Ron Baker might even say doesn't even consider the cost that you incur. Maybe your management of your firm considers the cost that you incur, but the price doesn't. Instead, you begin with the value that you're going to bring the client. You begin with the effect that you're going to generate, or as Ron Baker would say, the wealth you create. Wealth is not necessarily limited to an increase in profit. Wealth can be determined based on an increase in infrastructure or a stabilization of infrastructure. It could be a reduction in the stress levels of management or ownership. It could be any of the intangible benefits of us working with clients as trusted advisors. But it definitely does include, and the client's primary value perception might be, financial wealth you generate. Now, Once you've determined the wealth you will generate, you price as a percentage under that wealth, not a percentage over the cost you incur. Only then are you pricing based on value, which also tends to be fixed, but is not necessarily fixed. It could be dynamic as you generate wealth as you generate that percentage under wealth, if that's a very defined process between you and the client. Now, it means that we must create a result if we're going to create the kind of billings necessary. I don't even like the word billings. If we're going to create the revenue for our firm, it is necessary for us to have our own sustained model. But If we're not in this to increase value for the client, if we're not in this to increase the client's wealth, what are we doing here? Well, maybe the answer is we're merely compliance officers and record keepers. Nothing wrong with record keeping, nothing wrong with compliance, nothing wrong with assurance. It's just if your firm stops there, then it is not, in my opinion, fulfilling its mandate as a profession are within the profession. So instead, offer those things if you choose to offer them, but make sure that they are coupled with wealth generating services that require you to have a trust infused relationship with the client, require you to be a change leader on behalf of the client, require you to orchestrate outcomes that generate wealth for the client, and then Necessitate, if you're going to maximize your own revenue in light of your own unique abilities, necessitate that you value price. Okay, so now that we've defined what value pricing is, let's talk about the five steps. These are Ron Baker's steps as detailed in the book, Firm of the Future by Ron Baker and Paul Dunn. Step one, discover what your client values. In other words, figure out what will generate wealth for them. If they're an inventory client, like a wholesaler, then figure out what their shelf life is, and if that shelf life is too long, and if you can significantly increase their wealth by shortening the inventory turn cycle. And you can do that with the right kind of infrastructure system process and technology and measurements. Maybe if they're a law firm, it's non-production time. Somewhere in there, you can reduce costs, or maybe they need some market development services. They're not making the most of the products and services that they're already offering in a very streamlined way, and they can scale revenues disproportionately to scaling costs, and you can guide them through that process. Find out what the client values, okay? Then, find a way, step two, to leverage your knowledge to create that wealth. You say, Joe, I don't have any specific knowledge or what Ron Baker refers to often in Firm of the Future as any specific intellectual capital that will help me to create wealth related to inventory turns. Well, then I would say there are two responses to that. You can go get that intellectual capital or you can hire it, right? Or the response number two is you're in the wrong niche or you're looking at the wrong client. Find the client that fits the intellectual capital your firm possesses. Find the kinds of clients, whether that's a market niche or a kind of size of client, a particular structure of business operations. But find that kind of client that already fits the intellectual capital your firm possesses, and then you won't have a problem with step two. Every time you determine what the wealth is you can generate, you will always find a way to apply your intellectual capital to that wealth generation and to do so with employed resources of your firm. Now, going outside your firm to contracted resources is another way to connect the dots between the intellectual capital required and the wealth that you must generate, but obviously your margins will be greater Even in a value pricing environment, if you can own the intellectual capital, and that doesn't just mean you employ the person who has it in their brain, but it means that you take the intellectual capital into the systems and processes and documentation of your firm. So when you own that intellectual capital and you deploy it on behalf of the client, not only is your model more solid, but your margins will be greater. All right, step number three, communicate and if necessary, educate the client on the connection between your knowledge and their wealth. Remember, just having the information isn't enough. You must have the information and you must create a solution. If I have a knee that hurts, and I go in to see the doctor, and the doctor expresses to me that they have knowledge on how to fix my knee, and maybe they even start using a bunch of medical terms to describe what's wrong with my knee, but at the end of the day, my relationship with that doctor doesn't make my knee feel better, then the doctor has provided no value to me. The doctor has maybe educated me a little bit, definitely exchanged hours for dollars, but they have not generated wealth. There is no effect. So you need to connect the dots between your knowledge and your ability to generate the wealth. Then step four, set the price according to the wealth the client receives and remember to factor in the non-monetary increases in wealth, the overall well-being of the client as a result of their engagement with you. And then the final step, connect the knowledge you provide the client to the wealth you created, past tense, for the client. In other words, step five isn't isn't, uh, done prior to the engagement. Step five is the connecting of the dots after the engagement. Because if you don't connect those dots, and if you don't do it with measurable data points that you can tie back to the specific ways you made changes on behalf of the client they won't necessarily connect those dots for themselves and if they don't connect the dots they won't see the connection between what they are paying you and the wealth you generated creating resentment and perhaps even terminating the client relationship so you have to bring it full circle in step five now, as a practical layer, I do recommend having a certain fixed fee going in. This is a Joe Woodard recommendation that you adjust based on the measured value you create and that you measure that value incrementally. And then you wrap up in step five at the end with a total value assessment of the engagement against the fees that you charge or the price that you set. Right. Then when the client sees that they spent a dollar and they got five or spent a dollar and they got 10 or 50 or 100, they're going to be all the more ready to engage with you on the next wealth generating engagement. All right. So that is a summary of value pricing. And it's a perfect time now to drill down on the topic of value pricing with one of the world's leading authorities on the topic, Mark Wickersham. So Mark, it is great having you on today's podcast. Welcome.
1: Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to this, Joe.
0: You have a lot to share and we've got a limited amount of time. You are known as one of the world's leading thought leaders and experts on value pricing. Why are you so fixed on this? Why are you fascinated by the topic? What drives you?
1: A great question. I think it stems back from when I started in the accounting profession myself uh, way back in the late 90s. I started my own accounting firm in May 1996 and full of excitement, full of great opportunities. But I didn't realize at the time how hard the first two and a half years would be. And in the first two and a half years, I didn't make any money whatsoever. I was constantly going back to the bank and asking for more finance. And it wasn't until 1999 when I came across the concept of value pricing. And suddenly, a light bulb went on for me because up until that point in time, I thought you had to keep timesheets. I thought you had to bill by the hour. I had no idea how to communicate value. All my clients were saying to me, Mark, you're too expensive. When I knew for certainty, I wasn't. And when I came across a different way of pricing, value pricing, and started to put Pricing systems in place in my accounting firm, the results just completely transformed. So much so that a few years later, I was able to then sell my accounting firm to the managers in a management buyout. And that was all thanks to the big turnaround because of pricing. And that's then led me on to now teaching other accounting firms, accounting professionals, how to price. In the UK, I've been teaching accountants since the year 2000. And uh, the thing I love about pricing is the fact that more than any other topic, whether it's strategy, team building, marketing, selling skills, it's pricing that has the fastest and biggest impact on our results. We can we can change the way we price today and tomorrow like that, our results will change. Whereas marketing, for example, it takes a while to see the benefits, to see the results, sometimes six, 12 months. So that's why I love pricing. I think it's so powerful. And it is
0: powerful. And if it's tied back to value, you're absolutely right. You're going to communicate appropriately to the client why your price is set the way it is. It'll be connected to their ROI, which is going to make the selling process better. And like you said, it's the fastest way to throw a trigger on increased profits. But in light of all of that, why are so many accounting professionals struggling with it?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and and I do find this all the time. If I go back to 1999, way back then, I think everybody value pricing was something new and nobody was kind of accepting that they all thought you have to bill based on time but i've seen over the last 10 15 years a big sea change in attitudes that now most accounting professionals recognize that we have to change but so many say to me mark i just don't know how to switch from timesheets to pricing based on value and i think the reason it's it's hard is i think number 1 the biggest reason is because Uh, what's holding us back as a profession is a lack of confidence and when we have a lack of confidence we, we we don't like to change the way we price we we don't want to push the boat out we want we want to kind of keep within our comfort zones and yet confidence really comes from two things it's about number one having the knowledge when we understand learn how to price and how to value price it increases our confidence and when we couple that with the second thing which is having some pricing systems and that's what I'm really passionate about is is giving people systems so that they can do things they can price the same way the best way every single time and when you have that system and that knowledge confidence goes up and suddenly when you're having the conversation with a client or a prospective client, you get better results because you feel confident about what you can offer and about your prices And I think if I can just share one more quick thing, Joe, I think the other thing that is a huge thing that's holding us back in the profession is this this big myth that we believe that clients are price sensitive. And the reality is that is completely wrong. Clients are not price sensitive. And that might sound a bit strange, and I often get people looking at me strange when I say that and disbelieving. But the reality is clients are value sensitive. And value-sensitive and price-sensitive are two very, very different things. There has been some research by behaviour economists that show that, yes, there are price-sensitive people in society. It's about 20%, about one in five, and they are not the clients of an accounting or bookkeeping firm. The price-sensitive people are people like the retired old, the retired old lady with time on her hands that goes through all the free newspapers, cutting out the vouchers meticulously to get a couple of cents off, the, off her butter. That's not our clients. And the way I demonstrate this from the stage is, I ask the question of the audience, how many clients have you got that own an Apple product, whether it's an iPhone, an iMac, uh, an iPod, whatever? And all the hands go up. I ask questions like, how many clients have you got that drink their coffee, go and buy it from places like Starbucks? And all the hands go up. And if an accounting professional has got clients who are either buying from Apple or buying their coffee from Starbucks, for example, then by definition, they cannot be price sensitive because there are cheaper options out there. What we want whenever we buy something is we want value. And what we have to do is, when we recognize that, when we understand that, and it's a mindset shift, when we recognize that, we suddenly realize that what we need to focus our client's attention on is the value, the profit on the deal, and not the price. Yes, price is important, but it's only one aspect of the value equation. And the problem is, because we have this mistaken belief that clients are price sensitive, we focus on trying to be competitive compared with the other accountants and bookkeepers down the road. And that leads us all as a profession into a downward spiral of undercutting each other and getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And we have to get out of that spiral and recognize that what people really want is value.
0: Okay, so if that, and I couldn't agree with you more, that's how they want to purchase, they want something valuable. They want something that's a cut above. They want then, I would say, something connected to a projected return on investment, right? Can you just give me a couple of strategies? You have, you have a section that you covered in your breakout at Scaling New Heights recently called Five Strategies for Making Your Price Seem Really, Really Small. And I, I can only guess that there's sort of a unspoken dot, dot, dot there that says in comparison to value, Right. So can you just take a couple minutes to give us a couple of those strategies that will help us set value and set price in the proper perspective?
1: Yeah, gladly. Um, it's, it's all about, I, I, talk, I mentioned earlier the, the value equation. And the value equation is essentially, uh, and the, the value to the customer is the difference between what they get, the benefits that they get less the cost which is your price Uh, but it's actually not as simple as that because there's uh, there's different things that make up benefits and 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 we have to understand what those things are Uh, and also we have to recognize that it's also about perceptions so our goal is to make the gap between the price and the value seem as big as possible. And the bigger that gap is, the bigger that value, the more likely people will buy from us and the more likely they'll buy at bigger prices. Now, to make that gap bigger, there are a number of different things that we can do. One of the things we could do is actually reduce price, but I I don't recommend that. We've done that for too long as a profession. So to make that gap bigger, we either add more value, which is one thing that we do, and there's different strategies we can use to do that. But the other thing that's really key is there's this word perceptions. It's not actually about the absolute. It's about the client's perceptions of value and price. So you've asked the question about some of the the, the five strategies about making price seem small. That's, that's the power of price psychology. And that's one of the strategies that we can use. It's all about making that price seem as small as we possibly can. And I... I normally teach about 26 different of these strategies, uh, and at Scale New Heights, I taught five of them. And I'll give you uh, one or two examples now. One of those is something which I call don't reveal the headline price. And what that means, and there's, some, there's lots of evidence and research that demonstrates how powerful this is. What that means is wherever possible... Don't reveal the headline price, which, in other words, is the total price. So, for example, if you were pricing annual accounts, the mistake that we make is to give the price as an annual figure. So the accounts for doing a uh, a set of accounts might be, for example, $3,600. That's the headline price to do the accounts. What we shouldn't do is give that headline price because that seems a big number. So what we do is we chunk it down. And in the case of bookkeeping and accounting, we would probably divide it into a monthly figure and divide by 12. So when you express that 3600 as 12 monthly payments of $300, it's exactly the same number. The maths are the same, but at the subconscious level, price psychologists have demonstrated that we perceive that as being a lower number because we focus on the $300 rather than the 3,600. And this is why the leasing industry has been around for years making so much money because the leasing industry never tells us the total payments we'll make, they just quote the monthly figure. And that always seems smaller than the headline price. So that's uh, one idea that we should definitely be using, which is chunking the price down. And that also (coughs) works with uh, one-off services. So for example, if you were going to set somebody up with QuickBooks Online, and you might decide that you offer that as a service for $3,000, actually it's better to spread it over a period of time and quote it as a chunk down number. You will get a better result by doing that.
0: Mm. That's fantastic. And I'd love to be able to cover all of them. And I know you cover these in your books, and I would encourage everybody to go get those. And if you uh, attended the breakout uh, at Scaling recently, I know that you have uh, absorbed those. I want to save some time here for the seven-step Formula, you talked a lot in the answer to one of the previous questions about the need for systems. And if accountants had a systematized or systematic approach to the way they approach value billing, it's the way we're built, we like checklists, we like methodologies, we like proven systems, then you're saying we would adopt better. But the fear of the unknown is a deterrent. So you have a seven step formula. That it operates as a system. Can you, you, you talked about it on the stage, on the main stage of Scaling New Heights briefly. You covered it in depth in your breakout. Can you summarize it here?
1: Yeah, glad to. What it gives us is a framework because as I said earlier, one of the biggest things holding us back is a lack of confidence. And we get over that confidence when we have a system and I'm an accountant myself, uh, and as you rightly said, accounting professionals love their systems. They love their checklists, their standard forms, their standard letters, and, and I'm big into all that sort of stuff. So I, a number of years ago, I, I, I kind of recognized that every time I was pricing and teaching accounting professionals how to price, I was following a particular process. And so I, f- I, I kind of um, formalised that some time ago, and I've been teaching it as this seven-step process. And essentially... What happens is whenever you have the opportunity to price anything, if you follow these seven steps before you reveal the price to the customer, then you will get a better result and, and so this, this formula gives us a, it gives us a structure it gives us something to to help us formulate price so here we go very quickly and. As you know, I spent quite a bit of time on the stage at, S- at Scale New Heights, and I-, I sometimes spend a full day doing a workshop on this. So it'll be ultra quick, this, but here they are. The first thing we have to do, and this is kind of the, I, I suppose the most important message about value pricing, is that value pricing is, is something that, firstly, it's subjective, and secondly, every single customer values things differently. And that, I think, is another reason why we find it so hard to make that transition, because everybody values things differently. And, and we don't know how much a client or prospective client is going to value things until we start to have a conversation and follow a process. So the very first thing we have to do, the first step in the formula, which I think is perhaps the most important step, if you just master this one step, I've seen accounting professionals increase their average prices by 20% by just doing this one thing. And this is what what I call price discrimination. It's what the economists label it, but it basically means charging different customers different prices. And my hero Ron Baker has a wonderful expression. He says we should price the customer not the service, and that's so true. So we have to use techniques, and I think the single most powerful price discrimination technique for the accounting professionals is what I call menu pricing. It's about creating different packages and giving the client a choice. And it actually goes deeper than this. What we we should do, the general rule of thumb, is that whatever we're trying to sell, whether it's bookkeeping services, accounting, tax returns, setting people up on QuickBooks Online, we should always, always... Unless we can prove something else that works better, we should always offer three packages. I call it the magic of three. We haven't got time to go into the psychology here, but all the most profitable companies on the planet all do this. If you go and buy a latte from Starbucks, then you get a choice of three. You can have the tall the grande, the venti. If you go onto Apple's website now to buy an, an iMac computer, you will see they offer you with three choices. There's, a very, there's some very important reasons for the magic of three, uh, which I talked about at Scaling New Heights. Uh, and so the, the, the general rule of thumb is always create three packages. Um, because that what happens, it's the customer then gets to choose which package best represents value to them. And because every, every customer is different, you don't know which one they'll choose. And so by giving them choice, what some people will choose to do is to pay you more money than had you have just offered the one single solution that you might have done in the past. So that's the first step. Then moving quickly through the others, uh, the second step is we need to add more value, uh, which might sound obvious, uh, but it's, this is crucial. We're talking about value pricing. The more that we can, the, the more that we can add value, The more we can create a better solution, firstly, there's more chance the customer will choose to buy from us rather than somebody else because we're different, we're better. And secondly, they'll pay a higher price. And of course, it's in the client's best interest to add more value. So we need to be creative. Whenever they ask us to do anything, there's always things that we can do over and above what we've done in the past. And then step three is we have to better communicate that value, which is something that as a profession we are not very good at. Uh, we, kind of, we seem to assume that clients understand what we do when we do bookkeeping, when we do accounts, for example. And so we have to use marketing language and techniques to properly communicate value. For example, when you, we do bookkeeping, we would reconcile a bank account. The client has no idea what that means and the value to them. So we have to make sure we communicate exactly how they benefit from us reconciling the bank account. So that's the first three steps. Uh, Then what we have to do in step four is make sure we communicate the payment terms as well because that's part of the pricing equation. And at Scale New Heights, I talked about the importance of being paid in advance, not in arrears because we're in the service industry. And I talked about how we do that and then in step five it's about coming up with the price and the key thing here then Because in the first four steps, what we've done is we've built up the value, we've communicated the value, and so now we're ready to give a price. But the key thing about step five is we have to price based on value. And that means we never, ever go back to the timesheets to look at how long the job will take because two reasons. Firstly, nobody buys an hour of our time off us. When a customer buys from an accountant or bookkeeper, they're buying a result, they're buying a solution, they're buying peace of mind, they're buying value, they're not buying an hour of time. And, and secondly, when we look at how long it takes to do a piece of work, there is absolutely no correlation whatsoever between the number of hours we spend doing the work and the value to the customer. So we have to, in step five, find a, find a different way of pricing that relates to their perception of the value. And at New Heights, I talked through a software system for doing exactly that to make it really, really easy to get much, much better prices and let the customer be empowered and in control of the buying process. Essentially, the software process I taught at Scania Heights was the customer gets to choose the price. And what price psychologists have shown, shown is that when we are in control of the process as a customer and we can pick the various options and choose the price, we end up spending more money. And so that's really powerful. And then step six is the stuff we talked about a little while ago, which is the price psychology, then making that price seem really small. And then step seven is the power strategies, things like the power of testing. We have to continually test our prices. So there's a very quick whistle-stop tour of the seven steps, Joe. I think I just about got all of them in.
0: Yeah, you did, and that was blazingly fast. Uh, That was incredible, especially since you know there's enough meat on that bone. For an entire day one day workshop but i have no doubt these uh these seven steps are covered also in the books that you published i do encourage everybody to go out and check those out and a great way to wrap up would be you know how can people find out more and how can they learn more from you a lot of folks were able to hear you by either watching our simulcast when you were on the main stage or by attending your breakout We would love for you to come back if your schedule permits for Scaling New Heights 2017, but there is a lot of calendar between those two events, and I know that people need to act now. Where can they go to drill down on this?
1: Give them options. Yeah. Well, firstly, I'll be delighted to come back in 2017 and I'll – connect with me is really easy. I'm big on social media in particular, uh, so you can either friend me on Facebook, but in particular, connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm really easy to find. Connect me on LinkedIn. And what I do is whenever an accounting professional, an accountant or bookkeeper, connects on LinkedIn – then within a day or so, I always send back a, a thank you message. And in that message, I put some links to a whole bunch of free stuff. I send a link to a free ebook, a free in depth video training program I've created, and tons of other stuff. So that's the simplest thing. Just find me on LinkedIn, connect with me, and I'll send you some free stuff. And also, if you want to friend me on Facebook, that would be cool too.
0: Fantastic. And then, what's your website?
1: Uh, I've got a ton of different websites, which is why I always say just, just find me on LinkedIn.
0: LinkedIn is the best way to go. LinkedIn and Facebook, Mark Wickersham. Mark, it has been fantastic uh, re-exploring this, this topic again with you right here after the show. And I would encourage everybody not just to listen, not just to be inspired, not just to be intrigued, but to walk through the seven steps to deploy the five strategies to begin... Now, to convert the way that you engage your clients from selling hours to selling results, selling yourself, and selling against the value proposition you bring to your client relationships. It'll change your world, but it will also connect your clients more deeply to the value that you bring, and that will allow you to change their world. Mark, it has been fantastic having you here with us. Thanks for being here. Thank
1: you so much. It's a pleasure, Joe.
0: Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast and our conversation with Mark Wickersham. For more information about today's episode, to explore other episodes in this podcast series, or to learn more about our annual conference, visit woodard.com. That's W-O-O-D-A-R-D.com. As always, we encourage you to stay tuned, stay connected, never stop learning, and scale new heights.